Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney, and this week we've got a very exciting guest for me, certainly, a lady called Debbie Ryan, and she has connections with England Netball, which I'll go into later. Um, obviously, at time of recording this, this is the day after the Lionesses unfortunately went out, but hopefully at time of you listening to this, um, the English Roses will be doing very well for England as well. So fingers crossed that uh, they'll be doing a great job up in Liverpool. So Debbie, thanks so much for being here. Pleasure. Thank you. A brief introduction to Debbie. She's a people director, well, in many, many roles. You've got a really strong track record in transformation. And that's one of the things we will talk a bit about netball, because obviously you're a non-exec director of England netball and have been through this growth phase. Um, But you've got a real track record about transformation. And I think that's really relevant to our audience because we're all having to manage and deal with it. Your experience includes developing and implementing HR strategies in various kinds of change, whether it's good change or bad change, and that would be good to explore. And you've been a whole range of really pretty much every sector, service, retail, FMCG, tech, universities, utilities, you name it. Um, And also one of the things we do want to look at today is you're a non-exec. So some people out there may want to do non-exec roles. And you've been there with England Netball, as I mentioned earlier, since 2015. And within that role, Obviously, it's a strategic role. And as part of the HR uprising, it's all about helping each other to be more strategic. So that would be interesting to understand how you've contributed to strategy there. But also, you're very involved in both safeguarding and equality. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you're a player, umpire and coach, much, much better than myself. Um, I'm just a bit, I'm just keen on netball and play for fun. But anyone listening out there, you can go back and play netball in your 40s. That's all I say. You may be a bit injury prone, but it's still good fun. <laughs> so anyway... Um, Debbie, over to you. Do you want to give a little bit of a brief introduction to your background and then we'll perhaps go into the transformation piece? Okay, thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Um, I decided I wanted to be in HR when I was 16. I, my biggest influence was my father. He ran his own business and he always talked about, I'm only as good as my people. And I was given some advice, go do a degree, preferably business studies, preferably one with exemptions from the professional body um, and preferably a year out. So I ticked all of those boxes. Um, And then, like most people, when you graduate, you go and seek your first role. I've been fortunate that I've joined companies at interesting times in their history. Um, For example, I worked for Avdel Textron that was um, in a legal battle with some of the women regarding the how the pension was impacting um, how much they would receive when they they subsequently retired, and the women were taking the company to court to the European Court of okay. Justice and won. Um, wow. So I've been, you know, were you having to protect the company at that time? Or at that time, I was just a well, actually not just, but I was I was a personnel starting officer out. starting out. Um, 
but it was an interesting time of being in an organization where a group of employees was suing the organization yeah. and something that has had a fundamental change on women's rights um which I'm grateful for. I've also worked, um, we're here sitting in, in Redbourne. I joined Luton College of Higher Education on the day that they came out of um, the local community to become a university on that journey, helping them become that. That, that meant significant change for that organisation. They only had one professor, so to become a university they had to go and hire and develop a research profile which meant changing the way that they attracted people into the organization if i look at um carphone warehouse i joined when we launched the the iphone was launched um and then charles dunstan decided that he wanted to develop the talk talk business um, if I look at another organization i i was working there and we discovered some financial irregularities so we had to look at how do we regain the trust of our employees and also our customers, um, which was, an, was a, f- a really difficult challenge in the circumstances. Um, I joined British Gas on an interim basis to help them with a site closure um, of 700 people. Um, it's, it's been interesting times. Did you seek out change-oriented roles or did you just sort of find yourself in those? Um, I am driven by challenge and... I like a challenge and in the past some people have said to me the bigger the challenge the more ex- more excited that you get. Yes. Um some of those challenges have, have been hard in the middle of them because they normally you work in HR significant organizational change is going to impact people and sometimes that that is a significant impact on not just them but their whole way of being their lifestyles. Most of the time, you can find a way, and I think this is where good HR plays a part, of how do you develop a culture, how do you develop approach that will enable people to look at it is, yeah, it's not great that I've been put at risk, for example, if I look at the site closure um, with British Gas. But we worked hard to make sure that the majority of people could go on either within British Gas or with other local employers. And one great thing about an organisation like British Gas, they had a reputation for training their people well. Mm. So as soon as it was announced that... and it was People were attractive to go else to other roles. Then. Yes. Yeah. And some of my previous work experience meant that I had contacts in other companies where I'd made a call and simply a call was, well, actually, we're just expanding... We've got 40 vacancies. Oh, right. So you could actually help people find a new role. So you yeah. by, by make those connections. So in those sort of circumstances, you land in, I mean, there's, there's probably, we should perhaps look at where you've had to close a site or something, or something like that being challenging, the sort of themes that you've learned. Also, I'm just thinking, you know, the, the one, the point you made about where the women were suing the organisation. <laughs> Sometimes I feel that HR are almost... You're, you have to try and be Switzerland, right? You have to try and be neutral. Don't you? It, how, is, how is that? Because you're, you're representing almost both parts or do you have to go towards the organisation or any advice for people in those circumstances? I've always approached my, what, my role, whatever role I'm doing within an organisation is that I'm paid to do the best job for the organisation. Mm-hmm. And that will then mean what is it that 
I understand to be what we're trying to do as an organisation. And if that has a negative impact on people, is how do I do that by treating people with dignity and respect? But simultaneously, there will be times when you make a decision that says, actually, I'm not comfortable with the way this is being done, the way it's operating. And in those moments, you have a couple of choices. And one I think you have to do is say that you're not comfortable. Yes. Secondly, carry on trying to influence. But there might come a point where you just say, I there's a misalignment between my values, my principles, and how this organization how the people within this organization are currently operating. Because I think one thing that people have to appreciate, and I'm sure people do appreciate, that an organization today might be very different than it was five years ago because the people around a boardroom table, the executive team, the senior management team may have changed significantly in that period of time. Mm -hmm. And every leader will bring something different into an organisation. And if you think about some of the turnarounds of companies that we've seen over the last few years, where some sometimes a new breed of leaders come in, and because of maybe something that's happened... The organisations learnt significantly and said, we don't, we don't want to be like that. We want to be different. Yeah. And that's why it's important, I think, for HR people to understand what's the culture, what's the values of an organisation. Look at things like Glassdoor to understand what am I being told and does what I'm being told match with what employees are talking about. Yes, there'll be some disgruntled employees on Glassdoor mm-hmm. that maybe have a different view than the majority, but that's what something, that's information. You look at it and say, well, particularly for HR people, how do, how's an organisation treating people in those moments that are probably the toughest for the organisation and the toughest for the individuals? Mm. It's almost like customer service because we all look at companies around, am I getting great customer service? But you'll always decide whether you stick with a company on how they treat you when something goes wrong. And I think it's the same for people and organisations. Yes. So so it's, it's making sure that we do the right thing by people in a kind of objective and, and consistent way. It, it's occurring to me that there's something that you, you're... loyal. Although often people go into HR mm-hmm. for people reasons, you actually have to be very objective um, in terms of managing things, in terms of the best interests of the organisation, sometimes the, you know pe- there are difficult decisions regarding people. That doesn't mean you can't treat them well, and that's the key: is making sure they're treated well. The, I would, I always expect the, I would expect HR people teams to be human. Mm. Yes, and that has to be something that that I would expect HR people, not just HR people, anybody, to bring to the table. Um, I remember in one of the roles that I was working in, one a a director was transferring in from from the customer services department, and he he was desperately wanting to get involved in HR because there had been a decision that impacted one of his team, where where the HR team was saying the policy says this, the policy says this which meant that they were going to discipline a, a woman who'd had a miscarriage. Gosh. 
because the amount of time that she had taken off. And he was horrified, I was horrified. And he was in a place of, I just want the opportunity to go and work in the HR team as part of it for a period of time where I want to see if we can get to a place of, yes, there's a need for policies, there's a need for how do you make sure that people can work together because you're big teams, yet how do you treat people as individuals? And sometimes you have to tear up the policy, you have to look at actually what's the right thing to do here for the individual and whatever that is in that moment in time, that might be different in another six months' time because the circumstances are slightly different or there are more people involved in something, whatever it is, there's more people involved in it, which means that you can't take an individual approach. You have to look at it as what's the best thing for the team. And you've always got this concern about precedent, I guess, is where people are very by the book. You know, you've got to treat you yeah. like that, can't you? But it is, so, so it's almost helping people apply common sense and humanity to a set of circumstances and every circumstance is different while still being fair and consistent, which is pretty complex task of people I guess it is it is complex but isn't that really one of the reasons why people go into a role a function like HR because you you're dealing with people you're dealing people's careers if if they they want everybody I'm sure gets up in the morning and wants to do a great job they don't get up going I want to do a crap job yeah they, they want to come home at the end of the day and be able to say, yeah, I had a great day at work or I had a good day at work and I had a great day at work because I achieved something, I made a difference to somebody's, um, not necessarily their lives, but I made a difference to their, their day. Um, I'm working with great people. We had a laugh. Um, I learned something new. That's, that's, yeah. what you want to achieve and strive to achieve it every day that people are in work. Absolutely. So moving on to sort of where you've been involved in um, transformations and, and difficult circumstances, let's say um, where you had to do a site closure or something, were there any themes, things that you found were particularly successful or unsuccessful that you'd share with people in those circumstances? I think the three key things for me in terms of change and transformation is one that we just talked about is be be human and be pragmatic. If I look at one of the site closures that I was involved in, the it was impacting 700 people. And if you look at that consultation process, once you've announced, you go into mm. consultation and everybody will talk about, you know, here's the plan. It's, um, we're talking about, you know, if you're working with the unions, is there... A, a, a counter proposal, all of those sorts of things. With that particular closure, the announcement or the proposed announcement, it became very clear very soon that there was other organisations that wanted those people, and there was an opportunity to actually, well, we'll help with that. Yeah. But in in some respects, because you're still in the consultation process you could argue, well, no, we're not going to help with that because we haven't actually concluded that who, there will yeah, be jobs. you don't want to lose. Yes, you've actually got to select who's going to stay and who's yeah. going to go. You don't want to lose your best people necessarily. And one of the things that I'm proud of with that particular organisation is that they took a pragmatic view. They said, 
we know that there are opportunities for our people in other organisations and we're not going to let this process stop them being able to go and pursue those opportunities. And we even, for, for some people, secured roles. And then the question became, well, we haven't concluded the consultation process. Am I entitled to any redundancy pay? Oh, dear, that's quite complicated. The organisation went, yes. Good. And they also, and there, was, there was debate and discussion mm. around how do we continue to, our, to um, fulfil our, our commitments to our customers and our service levels because if we let people go early towards new roles, if we also let them have the redundancy pay, which potentially if we go through the process, um, their role may not have been made redundant in the end, mm. That you did all those those moving parts around the finances, customer service, and then what's right for the individuals. They move to a place of actually, we've announced that we are going into consultation about job losses. We will pay the redundancy pay if people secure roles partway through that process, and um, we won't hold people to that period of time because. Is that basically taking VR? You were giving people. Was that voluntary redundancy your process or is that different? No, it wasn't because no. we denounced it. Um, and whilst we were seeking volunteers, it wasn't necessarily that we were saying it could be this number or that number if we hadn't concluded the whole process. But that's one of the things for me is that in that moment, the organisation was very human yes. and very, very pragmatic. Very decent, actually. Yes, that's the thing. So and the other thing, was that the same one we were talking earlier about yeah. um, you've had to use other skills in your HR role, sort of coaching skills to help people. You were talking about a director who was struggling with it. It's quite Absolutely. emotional. That, that sounds like quite a positive outcome, but sometimes it's quite emotional when you're breaking the news to people, isn't it? Well, even that, when the one thing I hadn't shared earlier, when the MD shared it to the whole group, so it was split into um, two groups of about 300 people, and I was with one of the MDs and she was physically shaking as she was delivering the news. Mm. And every, not everybody, but some people within the audience felt for her in that moment, even though she was announcing the, that potentially they would be losing their roles. And one of the employees came up to her afterwards and gave her a hug. Oh. Which in that moment, you have to say, is incredibly difficult for not only the, the MD who's delivering news, that she's been part of making that decision, mm. but also for the employees hearing it, that in that moment, there's incredibly human moment of emotion and people connecting it strikes me that obviously it sounds like a very decent culture we don't all have that you know Mm. for that sort of thing to happen but there must have been a way in which that message was being well delivered so you must have thought it through very hard you know they must have appreciated the thought behind it and there was a lot the the hr team and the communications teams worked incredibly hard over a few months beforehand, looking at how how do we manage it because it's going to be big, yes, and it is going to have a significant impact 
not only on the individuals that are going to hear this news and going to be impacted by it, but the rest of the organisation. And therefore, it was absolutely key that we did an excellent job. Yes. You you take no pleasure in, in doing it, but you strive to do a really excellent job for the people that are impacted. And if I look at that particular, uh, another director in the, in the moment was doing Q&A sessions and he, he was struggling because he couldn't find a way to answer a couple of questions and it almost became a ping pong match. And his comments were, I am really, really struggling. This is not what I want to do for them because I want to strive for when they go out of this room for this, from this Q&A session that they have enough information that will fill the gap between the next time we talk to them about what's happening. But I, I keep, every time somebody's raising a question, I'm batting it back. So I just talked to him about, well, let's look at what's the outcome you want. And if you were the individual asking that question or the people sitting around that individual, what is it that you would want to feel? What would you want to think? And what would you want to do as a result of that? So trying to get him out of his head because he just got himself yeah. stuck in, in, a, in, a, in that sort of because of the emotion, it just meant that he just couldn't find a way to go, actually, yeah, this is not a great situation um, that you're hearing this news today. We appreciate the impact. Let me give you this information. But it was just he got caught up in the emotion of it all. And let's face it, we all do. Absolutely. Um, Did you, it, do you ever find it hard emotionally? Yes. To know that? And what, have you got any strategies that help with that? Um, several things that I will do and I've learned over the years is clearly practice the words that you want to come out. Let other people hear it. So I'm, I think I'm really, really fortunate in that my, my brother and sister are great at challenging me. And giving me feedback. So you do a dry run with them, do you? Dry run. But also um, what I've learned over the years is that sometimes I need to be moving. So, for example, um, I will record myself doing it and then I'll go and walk with the hearphone. And so that I'm actually hearing myself and just and as I'm walking, how does that sound to me? So that I can not only hear it from the perspective of, how do I sound to me? But also, how would I sound to somebody else that's how hearing me? Like, yeah, if, how, how yeah. would I, what's it like to hear my message? What's the language, yes. Puts, so it's like the same thing you did with, with the guy who was struggling. It's, it's getting you, you get out of your own head into the shoe, into the, the, the shoes of the person who's receiving that message. Yeah. And then you can really think how to tweak it and, and message it there as well. So that, those are... Does that deal with the emotions? Is it by being well prepared that deals with the emotion? Is there, do you have any other thing? If, if you're kind of someone's really upset or something, we're naturally empathetic to that. Do you? What do you do there? If somebody's really really upset, there's a. Firstly, you have to make sure. Okay, this person needs me to connect with them, and in that moment, you have to almost just let your own emotions. I would just say still is probably mm-hmm. the best way of describing it so that you focus on them as an individual. 
breathe deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and also from a perspective of almost hold space for them and allow them to, to talk, allow them to be silent, take your lead from them. Mm. Because sometimes you can find that if somebody is emotional, you might find, you might almost be, oh, you know, it's not as bad as you think. Well, it is to them. It, and that doesn't make it any better, does it? They no. just need to do it and get it out, yeah. And there's, I, I, I've gone through NLP training, so there's some times when it might be an opportunity to say to the individual, well, what's, what's, what's it like for you? And whatever it is that they say is that, well, um, I'm worried about how I'm going to pay my mortgage. Okay, so how can we help you answer that question? And you could go into a very much, mm. well, don't worry about that. We'll give you links to this. So it's not this. problem solving. It's just helping them unpack it. I used to work with a lady called Sheila who she has an exercise called the blue bag and potato <laughs> exercise, which is basically <laughs> you gather all of their concerns and they say, you know, what's it like for you? You keep on with that. And you effectively, you can't see me for the benefit of the tape. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm putting the concerns in my bag and you have a, in my blue bag, no idea why it's blue. And I have a potato in my mouth mm-hmm. rather than start answering it because it stops you getting defensive. So that sounds like a, quite a good, so it's, it's keeping it with them. It's allowing them to just express what they're feeling, what they're thinking, what their concerns are. And then I guess if there are answers, you're in a better position also to address them, aren't yeah. you? And I think what's also key is that if somebody is in a more emotional state, a rational response is unlikely. It's a mismatch, to, isn't it? It's a complete mismatch. Yes. So in in the when people are in an emotional I'm state, stop doing that to my children. <laughs> <laughs> I just so I did that this morning. It's, it's easier said than done because yeah. you know it's almost that when you ask about how to prepare. There's over the years I've tried to learn that because I can be very much in my own head is. Okay, how do I use my head, but also how can I speak from my heart? Yes. And, but also in that moment, stop myself from going, don't worry, it'll be fine. Yes. Because when you're in the midst of a trauma, and and it can be anything that's generated that trauma, almost the last thing you want to hear is, now, now, don't worry about it, it will be fine. You want to hear, actually... Yeah, it's it's not yeah. great at the moment. Mm. And you might want to say, as they're starting to move through that emotion, or when you've been in a similar situation, what did you do? So you're, that's where I can hear that your skills are coming through in terms of NLP, in terms of coaching. So I suppose in, in, in the interest of time, mm. so I'm very keen to get onto Winter <laughs> Netball, um, there's, there's sort of things that obviously there's loads we can take from your experiences. There's stuff about communication really but it's and and it's stuff about being both logical and empathetic or empathic um in terms of your so having that flexibility you're there to support the business but ultimately you also have to be there for the individual and to Mm. be able to reach out for them and very much about being able to when you're designing communication putting yourself in the shoes of that other person even to the extent of actually saying it out loud and hearing it back can really help you and then it sounds like your develop, personal development that you've had around coaching and NLP and those sort of things have then been tools that you've been able to 
bring into your, your practice there. And I suppose if we make that link then in terms of fact, now you've obviously done a range of roles and you're now non-exec director. And that is a strategic role, I mm-hmm. guess, rather than an operational role. How is, how is that? What would you say? What is, how would you describe the role of a, a non-exec director? It's very different from a, an executive director because, and that's one of the things that when you move into a non-exec role, and I've spoken to a number of people who have made the transition, and they all say the same, you have to remember you're not an exec. You're there to advise, you're there to be a critical friend, you're there to provide some, maybe some um, specialist knowledge that maybe is not available within the executive team. So you have to resist that urge to, to get right in, get your, throw yeah. your sleeves up, <laughs> fix it. And, and so it, it, is, it is very, very different. And I think also doing the non-exec role for, for England Netball is I'm really passionate about netball. I've been playing since I was 10. I'm still playing um, 40-something years later. And there's um, I am passionate about the, the – it's great that, that – Girls and women can play sport, the impact that it has on their well-being, the social aspects of it. The I'm also passionate about how how can you how can we get more coaches into grassroots? The game doesn't doesn't happen if we don't get umpires, um, all of those sorts of things. Yeah. So sometimes um when I'm looking at the board papers or some of the things, and it's almost I'm now in the space of probably every board meeting, or if it's not every board meeting, it's every couple of board meetings of what we're doing about coaches. How are we growing more coaches? And I'm really grateful that Vitality have have said that for every 100 goals that are scored at the World Cup, they will um, fund one assistant coach a uh, level one so coach. that's an example of a strategy basically so, so you joined in 2015 do you want to talk about a bit about the sort of the yeah. strategy into hopefully where we are now in a you know one we won the gold in, in the commonwealth games last year so we're in a great position to outperform anything we've done before fingers crossed girls yeah. <laughs> and i think well this is this is what's fascinating about england netball is it is an, it's a governing body of the sport in england it is also a business it's an elite sport and it's also you've got the grassroots as well. Yes. So there's been a strategy about um, we're in it to win it. So a four-year cycle going from the last World Cup in um, Sydney in 2015 to this one about how do we develop the players and everything around the players to enable them to be in it to win it. So the whole strategy has been all around that. Separately, there's been a strategy around how do we grow participation? How do we um, basically bring more money into the sport? Because the UK sport, um, we knew that they were going to cut the funding. And last year, they announced that they wouldn't fund the elite team. The win at the Commonwealth Gold enabled us to talk to UK sport and say, we really need that funding. So they we secured it. Okay. So had they not had that success, then you wouldn't have had it it in jeopardy. Because one of the things is it's not an Olympic sport, is it? You told me, and I didn't understand why that was. And do you want to explain for the benefit of anyone listening why we're not an Olympic sport? So it makes no sense. And what is it, skateboarding or breakdancing? It's breakdancing is going to be in. There's a combination of reasons. One key reason is the, the netball isn't across the whole world. 
So it's dominant in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Um, It's dominant, for example, in England, um, the African countries, um, at the Commonwealth, basically. Yes. It's not dominant in, say, somewhere like Germany. No. Or France. Europe, yeah. It's growing in the US. Um, If the US got big, given the football, then that potentially would swing it. You then look at Russia, you then look at China. Mm. So if you're looking at how do you get a sport to be an Olympic sport and not just one of those sports that's put in for a one-off Olympics, it is how how is it played across the world and therefore the International Netball Federation has plans around how it grows the sport across the world. So that's, that's, that's interesting. Sorry, I mm-hmm. took you off on a bit of a tangent there. So back to you in it to win it and the strategies that when you joined 2015, exciting time, you knew we'd got the World Cup here um, three years later. Um, you Well, you didn't know that there was uncertainty around funding yep. and then it is chicken and egg. If there's no funding, then you can't train people up and we're not going to have success and we can't do grassroots netball. And speaking as a grassroots netballer, I absolutely understand the issues we have about lack of coaches and lack of umpires. And lack which of facilities. Yes, Absolutely. You have 4G pitches that you can't play netball on, but you can play anything else on and that sort of thing. Um, so going back to being strategic in a non-exec role, what sort of strategies were you discussing then and how have they been enacted? So the ones around, if I look at the commercial aspects, how do we get more sponsorship? Who do we sponsor with? Um, Vitality has played a key part in that. I think they're great, by the way. I've given them a plug, Vitality. I've got my, (laughs) I'm wearing my Vitality Apple Watch that is free as long as I do enough steps in a week. So we do our life insurance. They do a lot of sponsorship, don't they? And they have. If you look at what they've done over the last three years or so, they have really been supportive of women's sport. Mm -hmm. And it's great because I think they've been the leaders in that. Um, If we look at also in terms of strategies, um, we've just announced the, the Netball Bees. So there's a program for um, coaches to pick up and run with, uh, I think we're starting at three to 11-year-olds. Um, all the work that's going on okay. within net, England Netball, there is a strategy for participation. So for it, it, you know, the strategy around participation is netball your way. So if you want to play netball, you could go and play the normal classic rules. You could go and do fast five. You can do fast net. There's walking netball. Um, if my mum was still alive today, I'm sure she would play, be playing walking netball because yeah. um, she always fancied herself as a goal shooter, but they never quite played it at her school in those days. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, getting the numbers high enough to do it isn't, isn't, in some of these, just get it off the ground. So, so we've, well, we, we play locally and we kicked it off ours and it started out as a group of mums and uh, it's still a lot of mums. We now have ages from 12 to 65. Yeah. And one of this lady who's 65 who's awesome and very tall. Um, and an occasion we've done walking netball and she tried to go to walking netball, but it was about getting enough people there to be able to have a game. That's the thing we've got three or four, it doesn't quite work. So this would be great to get the traction going. What we also need is how do we make sure that girls don't stop sport yes. in school? Mm-hmm. Because the numbers drop off significantly. Um, but these numbers are a little bit old, so I think it's improved since then. But only something like 10% of girls between the age of 13 and 18 participate in team sports. Mm. 
if you look at the number of senior women execs that have played team sports, it's a high proportion. How so you could argue that it's good for your career. Mm. Um, but even so, whether it's um, somebody is not great at netball, and I coached some juniors a couple of years back who couldn't get into the school team. No. And we're frustrated. It's not they... always the good ones that, I mean, it's the good ones that stop and then you've got the ones who are keen who then become better and better and better. But... And, and they wanted to play yes. and they were frustrated. And, if, and I've got a couple of um, 15, 16 year olds and I was talking to them about, um, so how much netball are you playing at school? We get 30 minutes a week. Yeah. And I was, and I was shocked because PE is a one, we used to have double PE. Yeah. So that gave you time to change. It gave you time to go and play. Yes. And do whatever you needed to do and also time to change. Yes. And shower or whatever you yeah. to And that's not happening in schools today. No, it's, it's very strange. I mean, so my daughter's in a, a year group of 200 people. She, my daughter loves netball and does play netball. Um, of 200 people, of which I'd say 100 are girls. And they would have one team of seven girls and yeah. it gets fewer and fewer and, you know, they're scraping them to get the nine. That's ridiculous percentages. What are the rest of them doing? Now, some of them play football. At other schools, locally, some play lacrosse. But, you know, it's it's more the 80-20. It seems like 20% of them are playing active netball. And, and it's a shame. So why why is it? I don't And the, the only thing I've ever heard is a reason is about they don't like getting sweaty and they're too busy kind of wanting not to look the part. It's not cool to... And there, there is, yeah. there is some of that because it, we we look at body consciousness and yeah. not just for girls but also for boys. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that there's pressure on teachers because if you look at how much teachers have in terms of their workload, yes, and often they have to in, do it in addition, yeah. yeah, and often in schools it won't be just the PE teacher that's picking up maybe the netball team or the football team after school, it's the English teacher, it's the geography yeah. teacher. And then it's, well, there's this after school. And in some schools, those schools participate in national schools, which means it's the weekends. And then suddenly you've got a whole issue of how do you make sure that you've got enough people that are trained well enough, safeguarding issues, yes that can manage a really great group of girls and boys that want to play sport on through the week at the weekends parents juggling their lives as well as you know most Mm. most because the nature of work has changed that's also impacting parents ability to enable their kids to get to either after school clubs or clubs in the evening at the weekend so I think all of all of this needs to be looked yes. at. And it's one of the things that England Netball with other national governing bodies are funded to do with from from money from Sport England to look at how do we get more people involved, all different age yeah. ranges. And that's part of the strategy development. That and that's, I've just heard them say that this morning on the radio about yeah. football. You've got to have enough people in it to keep on having your elite players in there as well, haven't you? Absolutely. So you talked about that. So as a strategy, you say it was about netball your way, isn't that? There's yeah. a catch So it's, it doesn't matter who you are, anyone listening, there should be netball you can get access to. And it has grown hugely in the last 10 years, hasn't it? In terms of the sort of success of the current team, um, what sort of elements strategically have been put in place there looking at the... 
the lion, sorry, wrong team, the roses. <laughs> One of the key decisions that that we made as a board, um, going back to I think it was early 2016, was how do we turn the players professional? Mm. Because if you look at um, some of our past heroes, somebody like Pam Cookie, I remember reading an article about her that she was doing three hours training a day on top of a full-time job. She was one of the best goal attacks in the world. Compare her to the best goal attack in in Australia or New Zealand, they were being paid. They weren't juggling three hours of training and a full-time job. So we made that decision to enable those players that wanted to take a grant to focus full-time on being a netballer, that they could do that. Some of the teams... Take it, it's not football money. It's, you know, <laughs> definitely it's not. The door. It's definitely not. Um, then there are other players the like like Jeeva, um, like Joe Hart and like Helen Housby that are playing out in Australia yeah. who aren't on that programme because they're being paid by their clubs, but they are full-time athletes with those clubs. Right. And that's been a game changer. It's also been a game changer that... The, the philosophy of England Netball, um, the current director of performance, has said, well, we want our players to be the best in the world. To be the best in the world, they've got to compete with the best in the world. The best league in the world is in Australia. So that's okay for them to go out they and play They did say there. that that was one of the things behind the success last year because, again, for the benefit of listeners here who are not into netball, it is very much Australia and New Zealand and have been the champions. And so the achievement, I mean, the achievement last year, I don't even want to explain how important that was and the part that played in them being over there. So in terms of the Commonwealth gold, the, the players had never been to a final of a major event. So when they beat Jamaica in the semi-final, for them, that was significant. Mm. And, and nail-biting for anyone watching. Yes. And, and the other thing is that Australia hadn't lost on their home, uh, home soil. So for the, for the players going in, on that Sunday, they were in a place of, we have nothing to lose. And they knew that they were good enough. And you'll hear the, the English Roses captain, Serena Guthrie, talk about um, that how you know we know we're good enough. We just got to back each other up, and we just go and play our hearts out. And, and that's what they did. And they won by one goal. And I think this is the this will be the in most, the last five seconds. You know, <laughs> this will be the most competitive World Cup that there's ever been. Because if you look at the matches between the top five six, they have been decided on two or three goals. And when you're scoring around 100 to 120 goals in a match, the margin is tiny. Mm. And that could be that just somebody um, slightly inaccurate throw, somebody does an awesome intercept, it just can turn. And the game can turn incredibly... the game can turn in three seconds. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely can. Um, I'm already feeling slightly anxious. At the <laughs> of it. And it, one of the things I was going to ask you about was the mental piece. And, and the reason I think I am, I am one of the few people who has seen a match, not a netball match, but seen England in a World Cup final beat Australia. Very, very fortunate. Mm. So I was actually there um, back back in 2003 uh, when England beat Australia in the Rugby Football World Cup. Um, and that was nail biting, I have to say. Uh, 
having said that, one of the things that I thought was very different about that, because I've always noticed about Australia in sport, is that they believe, they have this immense self-belief. And I thought in the England rugby team at that time, they had the mental strength over and above. And, and I've always felt that we Brits are pretty good at being an honourable second. So I just wonder, has there been... In terms of the the stuff that we put in for not, not only performance, is there also some coaching like that, mental coaching? There is. Um, the team's been working with Damien Hughes. They have a lifestyle coach that's working with them. Um, so for not only for the here and now, but also life after netball. So there's been a, there's been an enormous amount that's that's infrastructure that that's been put in place to enable the players to excel on the court. Yes. Um, and that's that's fabulous. And that's been game-changing. The England Netball has been working towards it. This has been building and building and building. It's just within the last three, four years that we've enabled everything to come together. And then there's been those key strategic decisions. Uh, the, if we want to be the best in the world, then we've got to operate in the way, same way that the best in the world. Well, that's players are full-time athletes. How do you get players to be full-time athletes? Well, you've got to generate, either get the funding for it or you've got to generate the money for it. How do we generate? And it's just all of those things have all come to, into play. Slightly, I mean, this is HR being strategic. I know you're not just, well, it, it's a business being strategic and it's looking how do you achieve these goals through our people initiatives, whether it's your, you know, your elite team or your grassroots players. It's looking at how do we achieve this outcome? And for me, it's, it's the... I look at when I was doing my MBA and we would, you know, you always look at business case studies and um, over the time, you know, we've been doing leadership development, you look at either the successes of British Cycling, for example, and try and take the lessons learned or what's gone on in terms of some of the things that maybe in the military, what have you learned from other areas and bring them into sport? I, I potentially think that England Net was going to be one of those case studies in the future and also, if you look at it, at how they play as a team, um, how one of the things that I'm striving for my level three coaching qualification, which is the highest one in netball at this moment in time. And uh, they talk about, for example, a player going and doing their job on court. Well, how do you set that player up for success? And it's a team game. Yes. How do they work as a unit? As that ball's moving around, what's the strategy to put pressure on the opposition? Yes. And when they're doing it to you, what's your strategies around how do you respond to that? And we're talking about quick decisions. And that has to be built as a strong, high-performing team. And one of the things, I guess one of the reasons why I love both HR and sport and netball in particular is how do you get teams to thrive? How do you get them performing extremely well together? Yes, in the world of work, we're not talking about it all matters on 60 minutes or for the lionesses last night that it was 90 minutes. Mm. Um, and But it's in those, it's that how do you get a really a cohesive team? They don't necessarily have to like each other, but they understand what people's roles are. Yes. What And they all do their, they know their role and they do their role and they spread out from their own in terms of it's, it's they're bigger it's greater yeah. than some of your parts isn't it it is and there's that moment where actually i've been pulled out of forgive for the reader the listeners around that's you know i've pulled, been pulled out by my opposition and then somebody comes in to fill that gap and help me to then recover to do my job if yes. you think about those moments 
of that is a well-trained team. Mm. And it's around their skills, it's around their values. There's a lot of work being done around the values within the, the, the England team um, and also England netball. There's a lot that's moving and the momentum's building. And I hope with my with everybody that I work with as part of the board and, and I know Joe Adams, who's the chief exec, they're all driving, striving towards making netball accessible for all but it is a really successful organization with a successful elite team that's making a difference to, to girls lives and i guess that's interesting because so you've got the organization has got its own ship in order so yeah. you're saying in order to be able to deliver this business going forwards yes and drive it towards i think in terms of the interest of time unfortunately mm. we probably should draw this to a conclusion um but we can't so we, um, we're going to put this out while the world cup is on hopefully the england roses are still in at this point of us listening to this podcast and they go through to the final um and we wish them absolutely all the best i wish you a tremendous time up up there thank you um and uh, yes and also for anyone considering going into netball look it up there's plenty out there and england netball site and there's lots going on so hopefully however whatever the outcome this publicity around netball and the ex- how it's such an exciting game that it is that um it will encourage more people to get involved in it which in turn will ultimately lead to to success and well-being and more female executives absolutely i think there's got to be a bit of a sales pitch there Debbie, <laughs> <don't you? laughs> so thank you so much for coming on thank Debbie. You. Really enjoyed um, it. I'm going to close that there, and uh, and everybody out there, thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of uh, of the HR Uprising. Get yourselves out there. Get get your is it on Sky or a BBC? Yeah, get out there and watch some of these matches. Get behind our England team and and uh, and enjoy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show, at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.